utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Please remain standing as we together recite the uh, affirmer Christian faith by saying the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He shall come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Just uh, remaining standing for another moment and just bow our heads in prayer. Uh, Father, I thank you that you are a God who uh, has spoken and has spoken in your word and continues to speak to us, not just in private revelations, Father, but everything, Father, ultimately is, is at one in harmony with how you have spoken to us in your word written the Bible. And Father, we ask that you help us to use the best of our minds and the best of our hearts and the best of our wills to understand your word. But Father, as we ask for this, we confess before you that the best of our minds is not enough, that we need, Father, uh, you to meet us in the Bible as you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that our mind unaided is inadequate to, to, to truly digest your word and have your word enter into us so that our lives will bear fruit for your glory. So, Father, we stand before you. We ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us with might and power and deep conviction so that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name uh, today and every day until we see you face to face. And this we ask in Jesus' name, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Um, just a, a little while ago, uh, I discovered that a, a friend of mine, whom I've known for quite a few years, uh, that uh, his, he's probably about the same age as me, that uh, his marriage of 30-plus uh, years has probably come to an end. And uh, that's, of course, a very sad thing. Ever since I've heard about it, I've been praying for uh, him and his wife. And um, he, uh, he and his wife attend a very, very, very solid church uh, where they have been very, very active and involved. And... Um, and, uh, you know, they've done all sorts of the things that you would think to be right in terms of their kids and, and all sorts of other things. And I, I don't know, obviously, what goes on inside the house. And I don't know what's, uh, you know, brought the marriage maybe to an end. Uh, maybe not to an end, but maybe to an end. Uh, but it's just very sad. And, uh, and, and it, it raises a, a very interesting type of problem. Um, it sort of touches on a deep fear that many of us have about the Christian faith is that it sometimes it just seems as if it doesn't work, right? That um, here's this couple that could be married for over 30 years and attend a really solid church and they probably read the Bible and prayed and maybe even read the Bible and prayed together and did all sorts of the things that you think 
they should do. So how, how on earth could something like this happen? And um, and because and you see, at, at, a, at a very, very deep level, many of us believe and think that Christianity should make us better. And it will work out so that our lives are, are better and that they're an example and they, they bring glory to Christ. And that's not only how we think, it's how many people think that, that the, the, you know, doing something like that, it, things should turn out different. And if they don't, we think to ourselves, like, where on earth is God? And, and maybe even start to think, well, why on earth would we even bother with all of this stuff? So when we hear stories about this, apart from the fact that we might now be very touched, and, and maybe some of you will, will pray for this unnamed you know, couple that I learned about a couple of months ago, but it, it raises sort of real issues for us. Like, how on earth can Christianity be true? How on earth can the Bible be true if things like that happen to people who seem to do the right things? And if that's the case, why bother? So as I said, we're going through the book of Romans, and the book of the, the, the text of Scripture, believe it or not, with all that odd language about circumcision <laughs> and uncircumcision, it actually goes to the very heart of this particular question and this particular fear and expectation that many of us carry around. But just before we go there, if you have your Bibles, you might want to start turning to Romans 4. Andrew, could you put up our, our verse, Romans 1, 16 to 17? So if you're a guest here this morning, uh, as we've been going through the book of Romans, uh, the, the text that we're reading, the way the, the way, <laughs> the way the book of Romans is written, the book of Romans is a book, and, and Paul sat down and he, he wrote the book. Um, and uh, the way it's written is that the first uh, 15 verses are basically, hi, I'm Paul, uh, this is a few things about me, and these are some of the things I've done, and he's trying to make a personal connection. And then in, in verse 16 and 17, he almost models, those of you who are used to academia, he almost models the uh, universe, the abstract that appears at the beginning of academic papers, where they try to summarize the entire article in a, in a paragraph. And, um, and in fact, many people uh, don't read articles, they just read the abstracts, because it's a lot quicker. <laughs> yeah, get rid of all the other bump. Uh, confession is afterwards, if that's what you've been doing, and, uh, try, and pretending that you've been reading the whole paper. Uh, and, and, and Paul actually models this. It's almost like an abstract. Verses 16 and 17, Paul gives an abstract of the entire book of Romans. And, uh, and then after verse 16 and 17, he tries to sell the problem. And verses 18 in chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, is Paul selling the problem. If you're used to a management type of language where you have to first sell the problem before you sell the solution, that's what happens 118 to 320. And then 321, which we looked at last week, is Paul beginning to outline what the solution to the problem is. And chapter 4 comes, that's all part of Paul trying to outline the solution. But just so we're sort of oriented in the book, because everything in the book is summarized in this this these two verses. Would you read these two verses out loud uh, with me? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, that's what the whole book is about, and it doesn't sound like it's talking about anything like that very much with all this going on and on and on about circumcision, but it's dealing directly with this problem. How is it that somebody could go to a good church for 30 years, a solid church, and, and believe the right things, and, and probably be pretty good at prayer and reading the Bible, at least, if not exemplary, at least average, <laughs> 
in, in those circles. And how, how can, why isn't it, why is it that something like that would happen? Why isn't it that their lives are better? Well, let's, let's listen to what Paul says here in Romans chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Just pause right off the bat. <laughs> so what, what's happening here is this. Um, when I was in the Anglican Church of Canada, uh, people called me a fundamentalist. And it was a slur. It was a, an insult. And, um, uh, and one of the reasons that they called me, would insult me, by calling me a fundamentalist is because I would ask the question, what does the Bible say? As if that's somehow a narrow-minded, anti-intellectual, fundamentalist question. But the Bible teaches you to ask, what does the Bible say? So what Paul has just done in chapter 3, in verses 21 to 31, which is just before this, is he outlines this these series of images about what it is that God has done for us in the cross how God has acted in a way which is right with effective power to make human beings right with himself. And he gives these series of images about it. And then the reader might be saying, well, that's all right, that just popped out of his head. And Paul, who's writing to, many, to Jewish and to, to, to others, he, says, he really says to himself, you might be saying, well, that's just popped out of your head, Paul. What does the Bible say? And that's what Paul does right now. He says, well, I've said this. What does the Bible say? <laughs> it's not a fundamentalist question. It's, it's a Bible question. If you read the Bible, you realize that the Bible wants us to ask that question. What does the Bible say? And, and the other thing, and I'm not going to try to prove it or disprove or prove it right now, but it's interesting that when, he said, when Paul says, well, what does the Bible say? As, as you read it, you'll see that basically he, he, he believes that the Bible teaches that when you hear the Bible speaking, you're hearing God speaking. You know, Paul knows all about different authorship and all that, but that ultimately there's one divine author of all of the scriptures. Whether the scriptures are written by Moses in the year 1400 BC or David 400 years later, that ultimately, even though there were different human authors, there's one divine author telling one story, one coherent story that begins at Genesis 1 and goes to Revelation 22. And so Paul asks the question, what does the Bible say? is this whole image that God does something with effective power in a way which is right, to make human beings right with himself, is this something that the Bible teaches? And that's why he says, goes to Abraham, and he's also going to go to King David. He's going to go to the book of Genesis and the book of Psalms. So we'll just read that first one again. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, by human descent, because Paul was Jewish? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. And we'll just pause here for a second, because you'll notice if, as we go through this chapter, and, and oft, a lot in the book of Romans, that the word justified is going to keep coming up. And in this particular case for justified, what, what it primarily means is an official, authoritative declaration that you are right with God. So it's not like if I was to say, uh, you know, to somebody, oh, that's fine, you know, your debts are all cleared away. You go, oh, well, you can't just say your debts are all cleared away. I mean, George, you're just a pastor. You have hardly any money. You can't cover my debts. Uh, you, you, you don't own the bank. You're not, you're not my car company. You're, you know, you're, you're not the student loan organization. You can't just say it's all right. 
So the word justified, it's as if there's an official declaration by one in authority, proper authority, with the power to make such a declaration and know whether it's true. And in this particular case, as Paul unfolds it, it's not only that God is able to make that declaration, but that he's the one who's actually made it right. It's, it's the complete opposite of what we're used to when you're dealing with the insurance company and you're, you're dealing with some little minion who gives little minion types of answers and has very little authority and you just sort of wish you could leap through the phone and grab them by the lapel or the shirt and say, I want to talk to somebody who can make a real decision <laughs> that, that's going to be right. And, and that's what we're sort of used to in our bureaucratic world. But this word justified, every time you see it, it's, uh, it, it's an image that comes from the law courts of, of Rome. And it's as if a person who has the authority and the power to make such a declaration, they declare that it is right, that you are, you are right with the organization, that it's right with you now. And it's Paul is saying that God declares as God that you are now right with him, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, and the end to which the entire universe, he will bring everything to its proper end with the new heaven and the new earth. And this very same God can declare for ordinary human beings like you and me, in an official declaration, you are right with me. (laughs) I have made you right with me in a way which is right. It's an official declaration. Okay, let's let's go back to reading. Go back to verse 2 again. For if Abraham was had this declaration by God that he was right, if he had this by works, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment because it's really important, he has something to boast about. Just pause here for a second. If, if, well, no, okay, we'll keep reading and we'll go back, sorry. I'm going to get, it can go, okay, never, keep, but not before God. He has nothing to boast about before God. Verse three, for what does the Bible say? <laughs> he says, what does the Bible say? Abraham believed God, and it was, um, I'm going to explain this in a moment, but counted to him as righteousness. And every time you see the word righteousness, uh, understand it as right with God. It's, it's more than just being a good person, because God is more than good. God is true. He is beautiful. He is wise. He is just. He is merciful. And Right with God. You know, you can hear a note that's not right, and you want to get the note right. God is the author of music. It's it's a bigger concept than mere morality, that you are right with God, who is more than just moral, but the true, the beautiful, the just. He's merciful. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He is the end of our longings and of our yearnings. He is sovereign. He will bring all things to their proper end, uh, and we are right with him in the full sense of who God is. So back to verse 3. For what does the Bible say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as being as righteousness, as Abraham is now right with God. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who declares that you are right, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And just sort of pause here for a second. How can God declare that the ungodly are right with him? 
how can God declare that the ungodly are right with him? How can God declare in verse 5 that the ungodly are right with him? This doesn't make any sense to us. It doesn't make any sense to us. Um, it would be as if a Buddhist or a Hindu was told that you see that uh, Hindu monk who's been fasting and doing all of these religious observances and, and, and has been meditating and doing all of that, and then you see this other person over here and they're from the, lower, the lowest caste, and all they do is they, is they rob and they rape and they, and they pillage, and that one's achieving nirvana, and this one's not. doesn't make any sense. It's as if a Muslim would say, here is this person, and they're doing all of these things. They've actually learned 7th century Arabic. They're following everything in the Quran. And there's this person, and he has no interest in going to Mecca. He eats pork all the time, drinks lots of alcohol, has dogs, does everything that, that doesn't fast during Ramadan, and he is going to heaven, and he is not. It is as if we heard that there is this person and their great-grandfather was a bishop, and their grandfather was a bishop, and their father was a bishop, and their mother was a famous evangelist, and they go to church every Sunday, and there's this person, and they're drunk all the time, and they cheat on their wife, and they do everything that's wrong, and they are the one going to heaven. George, this is wrong. That is not how the world works. And yet here it is. It says, in, in complete and utter opposition to all religion and all spirituality, it says here in verse 5, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness who declares right with himself the ungodly, their faith is counted as being right with God. That's a really astounding thing. It is a very, very deeply astounding thing. Andrew, if you could put up my first point. I can't remember now. I don't know if I wrote it correctly. To spirituality and religion, it makes no sense that God justifies the ungodly. To spirituality and religion, it makes no sense that God justifies the ungodly. You know, at the heart of all spirituality and religion, and we make a big difference between this and our culture, we say that we are spiritual but not religious. But the Bible would say that ultimately, if you look at it from, at a, in a sense, at a functional viewpoint, that functionally, spirituality and religion are exactly the same. And at the heart of them, they believe in works. They might believe in very, very different works. Uh, a Buddhist and a Hindu and a Muslim and a Christian might believe in a, and somebody who's spiritual but not religious. They might, they might believe in very different types of works, but they all ultimately believe in certain types or combinations of works. And by that, they, by that I mean is that they, we have a, a basic understanding, a basic belief, that if we do certain types of things, God will owe us. 
So if you're a pagan, uh, you might believe that if you do certain types of sacrifices, you'll both uh, get God or the gods off your back, but at the same time, you're, you're not only that you're getting the God or the gods off your back, but you're doing certain things that now put them, that they're in a sense indebted to you. And, uh, and it, it, for Christians, this comes in the form of this sort of basic belief that, yeah, 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 I became a Christian because I, you know, I, I said the sinner's prayer, yada, 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 yada. But the fact of the matter is, is that we live as if our standing with God depends upon our accomplishments. How do I know that this is the case? Um, I know that there are people who maybe even left this church after two years because they believed that God owed us a building of our own. And if we didn't have a building of our own within two years, it must be because we've continued to do something wrong. Now, they would never say that. They're too well-trained, but in their heart, they believe that. It's the same type of thing that says, how is it after I've sacrificed and I've given all these tithes and I've given all this money to the church and, and I, and I, you know, I had that opportunity to sleep with this man and I didn't sleep with this man. And I taught Sunday school and I endured the youth group. Good grief. And then this happens to me. Well, once we say that, what we're saying is that we've done all these things to put God in our debt. We've been working God. Working the angle. And God doesn't recognize that he owes us and goes ahead and does this. So I'm finished with God. Where's the bar? <laughs> or whatever. Spiritual, be spiritual but not religious. And, um, and that's very, very, very deeply rooted. That we either do certain things to merit God noticing us, or we do things to put God in our debt where we make some basic claim of our being connected to the right way. Well, I mean, my, my dad was a, an evangelist, and my grandfather, you know, he was a pastor, and my great-grandfather, you know, he built this church. He, it was his money that built this church. And that's how Christianity stops being, listening to this. You see, if that's your understanding of what the Christian faith is, then that God justifies the ungodly makes no sense. Makes no sense whatsoever. We're talking about something completely and utterly different. But here's the thing. You go to a lot of the bars of the city on a Friday night or a Saturday night, or maybe if you go, you know, right, I don't know, when the bars open at 11 o'clock, and you meet lots of people. If you ask them, what do they think about religion? They'll go, oh, what a waste of time. Those guys and gals, they're just completely and utterly self-righteous. All they do is just bend themselves out of shape. And you know what? It's a complete and utter waste of time. It doesn't work. I know this guy, and he was he went to the right church, and his wife went to the right church, and they went there for 30 years. And then after 30 years of doing all the tithing they did, and all the stuff with youth groups, and all the right stuff, still their marriage ends. It's all a waste of time. That's why I'm here. Jack Daniels, my buddy, in a football game on the screen is not a waste of time. The shocking thing is that the Bible isn't agreeing with the Jack Daniels and, and the football game. But the fact of the matter is, is that the Bible agrees with the irreligious person's assessment of religion and spirituality. 
That's what Paul was doing in chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 320. And he's going to, he's going to go back to it here again in a moment. That it doesn't work. It's a waste of time. You can't put God in your debt. You can't manipulate God. You can't work God. You can't do a charm offensive. You can't do any of those things. It all works. It all fails. But unlike, unlike the irreligious, the Bible doesn't just say that in a cynical type of way and then say the best thing to do is just get some Jack Daniels or something like that and watch football games or whatever it is that turns you on. Get lots of toys, make lots of money, make lots of money, then get toys, like whatever the order is. Get lots of toys, make no money, lose all the toys, bankrupt, whatever it is. Just The Bible doesn't go to that cynical type of route. It says there's another option. There's a completely other option that you need to consider. That maybe there is a way that God wants you to maybe think about these, to realize that spirituality and religion doesn't work but you don't have to despair because there's a God who exists who can act in a way which is right to make ordinary human beings right with himself. And maybe God has done something. Maybe there's news of God having done something. And that's what Paul is going to look at. So the Bible isn't promoting irreligion and not being spiritual. The Bible dethrones idols. The Bible knocks idols off their throne and reveals to human beings the real idolatrous state of their heart. And the Bible reveals this in the context of the existence of God who in grace does something that human beings can't do, that he provides the way to make us right with him with effective power. The Bible is always dethroning our idols, revealing our fantasies and illusions, the fantasies and illusions of our heart in the context of the reality of a God of grace who acts to make human beings right with himself. That's what we see here. Just look at these verses again. Verse four, 3. For what does the Bible say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as right standing with God. Continue reading. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one God count the one to whom God counts righteousness, in other words, counts right with himself apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Um, actually, Andrew, if you could put the next point up, because uh, all of these different words, covered, forgiven, counted, they're all financial images. God, by free grace, credits us a right standing with himself. God, by free, free grace, credits us a right standing with himself. What happens if uh, you owe me 
$10,000 and I forgive the debt. I forgive the debt. In a sense, your $10,000, you've given a different credit of being debt-free. The debt is covered. And the word counted is um, it's one of the, the interesting things about this Bible translation that I'm using. It was a bit different in Ken's, a bit different maybe if you're using the NIV with the New Living Translation. Uh, one of the high values of the, the version I use here when I preach it, it's, a, it's an essentially literal translation. And one of their high values is if there's the same word in the original language all the way through something, they try to use the exact same English word all the way through um, to help you understand what's going on underneath the text in terms of the original language. And sometimes it means it's a little bit harder to explain. But the word counted is also translated as credited. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a bookkeeping term. So it's like um, if I say you've done something bad, it's going to count against you. That's, it's, it can be used in a negative sense. But it also means something good. Uh, if you, you call up and you make a complaint about a bill p- payment... Uh, they'll say, okay, uh, we've credited your account and we've put the money back in. And that's the, the image behind this. This idea, it's a financial image. One of the things about the Bible is that the, the mystery of what Jesus accomplishes for us on the cross, it's a, a profound and deep mystery. And, and the Bible will use a, a mis, an image of the law courts of, of being acquitted and then it will use an image as if uh, you do something to satisfy the, the proper anger that somebody has against you. And then it will use an image of as if you were a slave and somebody pays for your freedom from slavery. And then it will use an image from uh, personal relationships about being reconciled. And then it will use the image of uh, being an orphan and not having a mother and father and being adopted and then it will use uh, an image of, 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 a, of accounting as if you have no money and, and God does something to, to cover the debt, to pay the debt, to forgive the debt. And, and, and God, the Bible, the, the mystery of what Jesus accomplishes for us on the cross is so deep and so far-reaching that the Bible uses all of the, tries to use about 12, 13, 14 different images to try to help us to be able to enter into the mystery of what God accomplishes for human beings in a way which is right, to make us right with himself. And, and in all of these images, it's not that all of a sudden you're, start, you're supposed to wander away and, well, who's he paying or who's this doing or how's it? It's just, you know, it, it's as if at certain times in your life, if you're struggling with people living under anger, then the image that the death of Jesus upon the cross is a propitiation, as that grips your heart, it frees you. For those of you who, whose record is as long as, the, as your arm and, and, and is in constant legal trouble, the, idea, the, the image of being acquitted is something that can grip you. I can well imagine that if you're a prisoner in jail and, and, the, and the message, you're going to preach the gospel, you might want to constantly use this image of acquitted. And for those of us who say, they're saying as they come to church, I don't even know if I want to go to church, George, because I have four credit cards. All of them are maxed out. My line of credit is maxed out. I've just lost my job. I'm completely and utterly overwhelmed with finances. The image of Jesus, his death upon the cross being something that is credited to us 
so that we are now dead free before God is a powerful image. And the Bible gives image after image after image of all trying to open up and help us to enter into the mystery of what Jesus accomplishes for us on the cross. And so the image which is here is this. Imagine in, in the ancient world, the time that this, the Bible was written, if you went into debt and you couldn't pay, you didn't go to Doyle and Saluski or whatever their name is and, and, and get out of just go bankrupt. No, you would become a slave. You owe somebody $50,000 that you can't pay. You don't just lose your house, you lose your liberty. So imagine in a time that, imagine that you're in a culture where that happens and you owe, you know, you're a, a poor widow and you have a, you just have your daughter and there's just the two of you and you owe hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, maybe your husband racked up the debt and then he died, but the debt still stands. You owe hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're an older widow and you have a daughter and there is nothing you can do. And you're just waiting for them to come and bring you and put you and your daughter into slavery. And if you're that person, that elderly lady, that you might think it would be all right if if they would just even take me, but the idea that your daughter would also be sold into slavery for the debt would be an overwhelming experience. And imagine one day you go and you hope that, you know, you know that it's going to be any day now that they're going to come and they're going to, they're going to take everything away from you. And you go and you just hope that you might be able to get that one little tiny bit of extra credit because you, you just need a little bit of food for this day. And you're just hoping you can get that little bit of flour, that little bit of sugar, that little bit of oil so that you can maybe have one last meal with your daughter and, and you and your daughter go before they're going to come and take you away. And you go and you're really, really worried and you're weighed down with doubt. And the guy, you go in and the store owner doesn't frown at you but smiles at you and welcomes you in and you get the stuff and you start to say to him, you know, I, I'm going to try to pay it back. And he says, you don't have to worry about it. All of your debts have been covered. All of your debts have been covered. Every one of them, you're completely and utterly free. Go ahead and order whatever you want. And you ask, who did this? And he says this, you know that powerful Lord that you see going by here? He, he did it. He paid all your debts. That's the image which is trying to get to you here. You're still a widow. You're still poor. All your debts have been paid. And you see here, if you get nothing out of this in terms of a, the, the app, you see, here's the thing. And, if, and, you know, maybe if I even just have to, I'm not going to end up, keep going. But if there's only one image, what is the difference? And what, what difference does the gospel make in terms of how you live your life can be seen in this particular image? Because if before the debt, if that widow and her daughter had said, you know, I have a couple of apples and we have this tiny little bit of oats and a tiny little bit of oil and a tiny little bit of, of sugar. And maybe if I make some apple crumble and walk up to that powerful Lord and, and give him that, he'll say, oh yeah, I'll pay your $100,000 in debt. That's religion and spirituality. What does a gospel-shaped life look like? The widow goes home. All she can do She's just overwhelmed with shock at what the Lord has done. There's nothing she can do to pay a Lord like that back. All of her life, if she just 
gave every penny she got, she'd never be able to pay him back. She would always be in his debt for what he's done freely and graciously to her. But she might say to her daughter, I'm going to make some apple crumble. And in gratitude for what he's done, I'm going to give it to him. That's the difference the gospel makes. As the gospel grips your heart, that's how you serve at the door. That's how you serve the coffee. That's how you love the kids in Sunday school. That's how a pastor is to understand his job on a Sunday morning. That's how Jen is to understand what she does when she leads the singing. That's how we understand bringing some apple crumble to our neighbor or giving some food to the poor or helping missionaries in Africa or China. Not hoping that our apple crumble will make the Lord have favor upon us. The guys in the bar will all be right. It's a waste of your time. But if God acts with effective power in a way which is right, which is characterized by grace and mercy and love, to wipe away all of your debts, then maybe you'll take your apple crumble and in gratitude offer it. And that's how you try to learn to live your life. That's why churches need to hear the gospel. That's why religious people and spiritual people need to hear the gospel. Because we need to get it out of our head that we're somehow or another putting God in our debt by giving him apple crumble. And start to learn that once we're gripped by the gospel and what Jesus has done on the cross, how can I not just offer him some apple crumble and thankfulness and gratitude? Isn't that just a wise and freeing way to live? So what does faith look like? Very, very briefly. Um, let's, we'll just read through the text. I wanted just to bring a couple of things out. I'm, I'm mindful of the time, but how do you receive that faith? How do you receive that like, George, are you saying that I have to have a particular emotion to receive it? Do I have to know the right things to receive it? Do I, like, what, how, how do I, what is this faith stuff? Well, let's look at verse 9. Is this blessing only then for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And what you do here is you take out the word circumcised and you put in religious or spiritual or churchgoer. And take in your own denomination. Is this only for the, the Reformed Presbyterians? Is this only for Associated Gospel? Is this only for Christian Reformed? Is this only for Anglicans? Is this only for Pentecostals? Or is it also for the people who uh, wake up every morning with a hangover and, and, and then go to a bar later on in the day? We say that faith was credited righteousness to Abraham as it gave a credit of righteousness to Abraham, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? In other words, was it before or after? You know what? Abraham was a worshiper of the moon god when God called him. Up until God speaks to Abraham and Abraham believes God's promise, Abraham worshiped the moon. God didn't look down on the planet and see who's the best living person on the planet and I'm going to pick him. He picked a guy who worshipped the moon. 
worshipped the moon. If he can pick a guy who worships the moon, he can deal with you and me. That's what, that's what Abraham, that's what the Bible is saying. And, you know, you can go on and read it later on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of ignore some of my points, Andrew. I think it's just sort of the right, the right time to do it. But God's grace and my response to him, if you could put this next point up, Andrew, God's grace and my response to him by faith fit together like a nut and a bolt. God's grace and my response to him by faith fit together like a nut and a bolt. Nothing else fits with God's grace. Nothing else. Because you see, at the heart of faith is this willingness to come empty-handed. You just trust and believe what God has done, what he's done for you in Jesus, and you come to him empty-handed. And at the heart of the Bible's understanding of faith is, Andrew, if you could put up the next slide. Saving faith believes God's promise that he has provided the way for human beings to be right with himself. Saving faith believes God's promise that he has provided the way for human beings to be right with himself. So faith is not a type of works. It's not an emotion. It's not an illusion. It's not believing in fantasies. So it's not like you're trying to screw yourself up into having a particular emotional experience or believe something that's not true. Uh, as we'll see in a moment, because we're going to say this verse together, it's rooted in history. It's rooted in the truth. It's rooted in reality. It's rooted in a historical event. It's rooted in an understanding of God speaking to reveal to human beings the significance of the event. And it's not only about the, the significance of the death of Jesus upon the cross, but it's, it's connected to the fact that he really did rise from the dead, that, 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 that lawyers and others who've gone and really studied it to try to disprove the resurrection from the dead, and they've come away believing in the resurrection of the dead. It's something that engages the mind. It's, it's looking at your life in the context of the, of the fact that there is a real God who really exists, who can act in a way because there's no reason why God can't be generous to us and deal with that debt that we cannot pay ourselves. And he would absorb that debt. He would forgive that debt. He would pay all that's responsible for it to be paid. And that he would offer this to you to come open-handed, to be made right with himself because of what he's done for us with his son's death upon the cross. The last verse and a half of Romans or, Andrew, could you put this up on the screen? I've just paraphrased the first part of it to get at what the Greek is saying. And I would just like you, if you could read this with me right now. Accredited right standing with God will be given to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does justification mean? Declared right with God. Could you read this with me again? Accredited right standing with God will be given to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead our Lord, our, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's the gospel message. And as this message grips our heart, as we receive this message and believe that God is true to his word and good for his word, I am always ungodly. 
there will never be a day in my life where I've accomplished so many good marks and so many good works that God looks down and says, whoa, I owe George today. That'll never happen. Every day, I don't know, I'm, I'm not as loving to my wife or my kids as I should be, and I, I think bad thoughts about people who drive, and, you know, I do other types of things, and I'm going to stop right now before I really get myself in trouble. <laughs> but every day, my, I am ungodly. But my faith in Jesus, which, see, this is the wonderful thing, this justified word, this is an end-of-time word. This is George, if Jesus doesn't come back and George lives to be 105, that when I die, God then declares me that I am right with him. God then declares me that all of my debts have been dealt with on the cross by Jesus. All of my future is covered. All of my future is covered. And I can know that declaration of God today. And live in light of the future declaration of God today. And learn as I'm gripped by the gospel to live a life of gratitude. And that's, that, as it, as this, as this grips us, it, it shapes how we view Christian service. It, it shapes how we view our neighbors. It, it grounds acts of selflessness. It starts to make us less defensive when people point out our failings. And, which are many, <laughs> because we, God knows all about that, and they've all been dealt with on the cross. And I have a credited right standing with God, not an accomplished right standing with God, but a credited. And it, it, and it starts to mean that I can look at these idols that I put my trust and my faith in, and I can say, God, I thank you so much for crediting me with a righteousness apart from these idols. Get them off my heart. Get them out of our church. Get them out of my imaginations. Dethrone these idols that as the gospel grips us, we can live a grace-shaped life to the glory of God. Let's stand. You know, the mission statement of this church is to make disciples of Jesus gripped by the gospel who live for your glory. And that's a mission statement you can pray And if you have never given your life to Jesus, or if you're uncertain as to whether you have, you know, if you just say, Andrew, could you put up that scripture sentence back up again for us, the last one that we just looked at? You can just pray that. Just say, Father, what those things are, I I believe you that you do this. Grip me with the gospel. I want to be yours. Grip me with the gospel. And God doesn't just... God, I mean, one of the wonderful things about the gospel is when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, God comes in. That declared righteousness is something that you can know for yourself today. And God doesn't just declare this righteousness. He gives you his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit comes in and dwells you and lives within you. But there's no better time than today to call out to God and say, God, I, I want to stop trying to be religious and spiritual. I believe that what Jesus did for me on the cross means that my debts are all gone, that you declare me right with you, and I have no other standing before you other than that. And for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, say, Father, you know the idols that I've been struggling with. You know how I'm slipping into thinking my performance is what makes me right with you. Father, forgive me for this. 
Make me a disciple of Jesus, gripped by the gospel who lives for your glory. Bow our heads in prayer. Father, for those using their own words to call out to you to be your child, I ask that your Holy Spirit would flood into them at this time and help them as they do that important business with you. In their own words, in their own heart, Father, may your Holy Spirit flood into them as they, as they call out to you and trust Jesus. And Father, for, for all of us, you, you know how we can still be ungodly. You know the idols that beguile us. You, you know how easily we slip into thinking that our performance is what makes you love us. So Father, we ask anew that you would make us disciples of Jesus gripped by the gospel. So in gratitude, and not in presumption, but in confident gratitude, humble, confident gratitude, we might learn to live our daily lives for your great glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a posture of prayer as I think it's Ross is going to lead us in some intercessions.